today on the Emmaus Institute for Disciple Making podcast. We continue our series, The Gospel, How to Share the Good News of Jesus, with a special guest, Lucy Coronado, as she unpacks how to share the good news of Jesus with Catholics. Okay, so before we start, I'm going to tell you just that there's no way that tonight I can go over everything in the Catholic Church. There's like centuries of history in it. Like I'm not going to go over the history and the foundation of the Catholic Church or the Reformation, Luther and Calvin. That's just kind of a whole series in and of itself. Tonight I'm just going to go over some similarities and differences between Catholics and Protestants and some ways that we can share the Gospel and Bible verses to back up with our Catholic friends or loved ones. Okay. Okay, so how I got out of the Catholic Church, uh, let's see, well, let's just go back. So like I said, I was born and raised in a Catholic family. Um, I was baptized as an infant at about one, two years old. My parents uh, brought me along with my godparents whose responsibility is mainly to, in the event that my parents were, die, were to die, they would take over the, my spiritual walk. Like they would take over my, they would be the ones to lead me and continue my faith in the Catholic Church. Um, I learned and prepared to receive the Eucharist, which is to them is communion, uh, which goes along with um, penance, a confession. You may have heard of those as, as part of the sacraments of initiation in the Catholic faith. Um, communion or Eucharist starts at around 10 years old. In order for you to receive communion, you have to learn what it means, everything that it entails. To them is um, the, what they call transubstantiation. It's basically the body and the blood of Christ are present during the Eucharist. That's a whole other thing. But before you can receive that, you have to confess your sins to the priest, and then you're prepared to do that. That's about at 10 years old. Okay. Um, after that, at 17, I did my confirmation, which is basically my, where I affirm that I want to continue, that I believe in Christ and, and, the, and the church, and I want to continue in the faith. Um, and that, that happened at about 17 years old. So that right there are four out of the seven sacraments that are taught in the Catholic Church. Um, let's see. So yeah, I was, my family are very active, especially my mom are very devout. We would go to mass every Sunday, go to confession during the week to prepare for communion during mass. Um, so I was in a Catholic school through middle school, you know, doing all the things, you know, that the Catholic faith teaches for, to receive grace and salvation and all that stuff. Um, Fast forward, I meet, my husband is an adult. Uh, my husband is not Catholic. He grew up Protestant, and, um, but we fell in love. We decided we wanted to get married. And me as a you know, faithful Catholic, believed in the church and the Catholic church as being the one and only church come from Peter, you know, the true one. So there was no way that I would marry anywhere outside of the Catholic Church. And so 
we did. We got married. He was able to get his certificate of baptism through his church where he was baptized, um, which was all he needed, you know, to proceed with the, with the ceremony. Uh, my intention all along was to convert him to Catholicism. Uh, I was like, well, this is the one and true church, and my husband just needs to hang out for a little bit, and we'll all be a happy Catholic family. Uh, obviously, that wasn't God's plan, right? Um, it actually backfired on me. Um, yeah, so through, you know, there was, through like my stubbornness, my unwillingness to leave the Catholic Church, we would go to Mass here and there. He was never, you know, into it because to him there were a lot of doctrines and a lot of practices that were unnecessary and unbiblical, which added stress in our marriage and so everything that I thought I knew that I was doing he would question or encourage me to revisit and be like why do you believe what you believe and let's talk about it but I was not having it so that caused division and added extra stress and we just stopped going to church we stopped going to mass I wasn't going anywhere else so there was desert there was dryness there was nothing and it was evident in our marriage Jesus was not present. So um, later on we heard through a friend that um, there was a Emmaus church which was a gospel-centered church which I didn't understand at the time to me it was like during mass you hear um, scripture from or passages from the Old Testament from the New Testament and then the gospel. There's a little bit of each during the service so to me all churches preached the gospel. I didn't understand the gospel of grace. To me, it was like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Like they're just talking about that. So we decided to visit, and the pastor preaching that day was not innocent, but it was um, it was about there was a mention of infant baptism, and I was offended to say the least. I did not want to come back. Um, yeah, so. My husband liked it though, and he was like, well, maybe let's give it a try. Let's go back. The main pastor wasn't the one, so let's, you know, we've heard great things. So we came back, and we happened to come during the Genesis series where uh, Pastor Anson was delivering a message where um, God calls Abram out of the land where he was and asks him to follow him to the land that he will show him. And the role of his wife was really the one where I was super convicted. Um, you know, she was faithful in following him. She submitted to his authority. She didn't resist, didn't question anything. She was like, okay, I'm gonna follow my husband. He's following God's voice, let's go. Which was everything that I wasn't doing. I was, you know, Part of my upbringing also was like girl power, you know, like you are you and I am me and I'm a grown woman, you can't tell me what to do. Um, you know, you're not the boss of me. So there was no unity, as you can tell, like what I was saying before, there was no unity. Um, but that day, that sermon just hit home. I had never experienced the word of God just come so alive and like rip my heart, just shred it into pieces. Um, so, and it was like, I, I knew at that moment that this is where God wanted us to be. It's ironic because in the Catholic Church, 
uh, or growing up, I never felt like, you know, you hear, I heard God tell me, or I feel like I was being led this way by God. That wasn't the case. Like I, when you pray, it's kind of like you learn these recital, recited words, like the Lord's Prayer, the Hail Mary, and very little personal communication and relationship happens. So the day, the day that I felt convicted was like strong and something that I had never experienced before. So then we just never left and have stayed ever since. Um, in the, the between, in, after that time, you know, my husband and I started having more conversations. I was encouraged through the church just to start reading the Bible on my own um, and learning and digging. Uh, I didn't have a priest to go to to get my benediction or tell me that I'm doing good. Or It was all on me to find the truth on my own. And so I had a lot of questions. He's the evangelist of my life. Like he um, can probably tell you later on his perspective as a Protestant outside of like what he would see me do. But um, we started digging in the Bible. I would have... Um, questions that I would look in the Catechism of the Catholic Faith, which is another book as thick as your own Bible. It's like huge. And in that, it tells you all the doctrines that the Catholic Church teaches. And the Bible is kind of like a re reference book. It's not like where you find the truth. So he would have his Bible, and I would refer to the Catechism, and then we would go at it. But then, biblically, there was no foundation for a lot of the doctrines that I was practicing that I believed to be true because of what, you know, my family would tell me and teach me growing up. Uh, but little by little, uh, I, I understood that my works, my, you know, all the things of communion and confession and fasting before communion and all these things that I thought would bring me closer to God were unbiblical and unnecessary. And um, yeah, that took a while. But one night I was driving home from work and I was listening to worship music, praying through the lyrics and um, just being real, being raw with God. The, the worship music just moved me also to be extra vulnerable. But by the time I got home, I was a ball of tears. And um, I realized and accepted or understood that there was nothing that I could do to merit my own salvation. That I, I was never going to be good enough or worthy enough of God's grace. And at that moment, it was like, I think it was just God meeting me where I was, needing Him and His embrace, and just... My relationship wasn't dependent on what I was able to do. It was through Jesus that was right there, just waiting for me to just accept it and receive it. And so I was just like, ah, everything came out. Uh, I, ha I was just prompted to let go of like my, my works, my life, my will, my strong will, um, <laughs> and, and just surrender. So. Anyway, that is my testimony. That's kind of how you know, I left the Catholic Church and then I accepted that it's not you know, God's grace through faith, not me. And um, 
Yeah. So now um, I think it's important to outline that there are different kinds of uh, Roman Catholics. There are distinctions between not everybody, not all Catholics believe the same. Um, I would be considered what is called a cultural Catholic. It's basically like just womb to womb Catholics who are born, baptized, married, and buried in the Catholic Church, um, but are relatively uninterested in spiritual, like spirituality. Like my family has been doing this for years and years and years. There's no need for me to seek answers on my own because it's been done and this is what I know be, to be the right thing to do. So that would be the cultural Catholic. Um, in general, there are six of them based on research um, and studies from people smarter than me. Um, one, of the, one of them is the ultra-traditional Catholic. They defend old-time Catholicism and are critical of the changes brought about by the Vatican. The second category is the traditionalist Catholic. Uh, though they're critical of liberalism and modernism within the church, they generally accept the reforms of Vatican. The third Catholic is a liberal Catholic who have replaced the Bible and church authority with the authority of human reason and have questioned the infallibility of the Pope, the church councils, and the Bible itself. There are the charismatic or evangelical Catholics who are more evangelical in belief and they emphasize the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the importance of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit-filled life. There's also the popular folk Catholics, who are predominantly Central and South American. They are very eclectic in their beliefs and combine elements of an animistic nature, culture, religion with a traditional medieval Catholicism. Um, so yeah, the reason it's important to understand these uh, categories is because a lot of times Catholics believe something that they don't know that the Bible, or I'm sorry, there might be doctrines that the Catholic Church teaches that they may not even be aware of. So like me, for example, while I was researching for this class, discovered things that I didn't even know were being taught. So just so you know, kind of gauge with your Catholic loved one for evangelizing where they stand or what they believe in general where they are. Uh, some common beliefs between Catholics and Protestants. By the way, I'm going to read a lot because I couldn't come up with, there are a lot of resources out there to help you with Catholicism. So kind of kind of put it together. Um, those are not all of my words. <laughs> uh, so common beliefs between Catholics and Protestants. Even though uh, Roman Catholics and Protestants theology differ significantly, the two of them share important areas of doctrinal agreements. Today I'm going to share with you six of them, and then I'll go over six differences between the two as well. So the first one would be uh, the Trinity. Um, Catholics and Protestants agree that God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is only one God, and He is triune. Each of the three is fully God, the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God. Yet there are not three gods, but one because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit share in one divine nature. The second commonality is God. Both Catholics and Protestants agree that God is self-existent, unchangeable, eternal, spiritual, or immaterial, 
sovereign, everywhere present, all-powerful, all-knowing, wise, truthful, faithful, loving, good, gracious, merciful, patient, holy, just, righteous, jealous, wrathful, glorious, simple, not composed of parts and blessed. Furthermore, these divine attributes characterize all three persons equally. There is no difference whatsoever between the three persons in terms of their divine attributes because the three share in the one divine nature. Okay. We'll have, uh, I hope we'll have time at the end for Q&A, so if you miss something, just, you know, we may have time for all that. Um, okay, three is the person and work of Christ. Uh, the saving work of Christ, because God is the Son incarnate, facing the trials and temptations. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm skipping. The person of Christ. The person of Jesus Christ is the Son who became incarnate as Jesus Christ, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He is the God-man, meaning in becoming incarnate, he is one person with two natures, one divine and one human. Um, the saving work of Christ, the God incarnate, facing the trials and temptations common to all human beings, never failed a test nor yielded to a temptation. As was necessary for him to be the perfect mediator between God and us, he lived a sinless life. At the end of his life, Jesus faced intense pressure and persecution, part of his sufferings on our behalf. Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins, died and was buried. His atoning sacrifice is the propitiation for our sins, is expiation, redemption, reconciliation, and victory over Satan and sin. Okay. The fourth commonality is that Catholics and Protestants believe in the Holy Spirit. Protestants and Catholics believe that the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. As the third person in the Trinity, he is fully God of the same nature as the Father and of the Son, with whom he operates inseparably in all divine works. Specifically, the Spirit speaks, creates, recreates, perfects, and fills Christians and the Church with the presence of the triune God. The fifth commonality is the glory is um, human beings. Catholics and Protestants affirm that God created human beings as the pinnacle of his creation. We are divine image bearers and as such, full of significance and dignity. Moreover, human beings are complex persons consisting of both body and soul. God created his original bearers, Adam and Eve, upright as people of integrity who rightly obey, obeyed Christ, I'm sorry, who rightly obeyed and trusted him. Sadly, Adam and Eve fell into sin, losing their original righteousness and becoming liable to death because of sin. The consequences of their fall plunged the entire human race into sin. Original sin is the state of corruption and guilt, according to some, into which all human beings are born. The sixth and last commonality for the, I'm going to go over is the area is the living hope. Uh, the personal hope of Christians based on Christ's atoning sacrifice to pay the penalty of, for sin is to escape eternal punishment and enjoy eternal life. The second coming of Jesus Christ is the next great eschatological or last things to come 
um, the last event that awaits actualization. He will return bodily to earth. Accompanying this event will be the resurrection of the good and the wicked alike. Both the resurrected righteous and the resurrected unrighteous will appear before Christ at the last judgment. In a public display of salvation and judgment, Christ will reward the righteous with eternal life and punish the wicked with eternal death. At long last, and as and anticipated from the moment that God initiated salvation, believers will live with the triune God in the new heaven and the new earth. So those are the six commonalities, but um, I need to caution that even though these commonalities, there are commonalities, um, the, the two traditions use similar words, which can mean very significantly different things, like grace, justification, salvation, evangelization, the gospel, sacraments, just to name a few, um, are used by both of them alike. Um, so they can have different concepts at work when you're talking to them about them. And it's, it's, so understand that, yes, they share those commonalities, but their terms can be different to what you might be coming at from where you're coming at. Okay. Let's talk about the differences between Catholics and Protestants. Uh, one, number one is uh, the divine revelation. Though Catholics and Protestants, let's see, they agree that God reveals himself through a general revelation. The two traditions differ as to what constitutes a revelation. According to Catholics, divine revelation consists of both scripture and tradition. For Protestants, um, revelation is scripture only. According to the Catholic perspective, sacred scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. Tradition is the oral teaching that Jesus communicated to his disciples, who in turn communicated it to their successors, the bishops of the church. Examples of tradition are the two dogmas about Mary, her immaculate conception and bodily assumption. Importantly, the Catholic Church does not derive her certainty about all re re revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. You, um, yeah, not everything that is in the Bible is to be believed. You have to believe in the tradition of the church as well as part of salvation. By contrast, the formal principle of Protestantism is sola scriptura, or scripture alone. This principle does not mean that the Bible is the only authority for Christians, but it is their ultimate authority for doctrine and practice. Okay? The second difference is the canon of scripture. So, if you have a Catholic Bible, you'll notice that the Catholic Bible has more books in it than the Protestant Bible, and that is what they call the canon of scripture or apocrypha. There's seven of them, and for various reasons, um, church fathers denied the, that they belonged in the Bible. So, and there are seven of them, which are Tobit, Judith, 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, not to be confused with Ecclesiastes, Barak, and additional sections of Esther and additional sections of Daniel. 
They both agree, those are in the Old Testament, so there's extra books in the, uh, in the Catholic Bible in the Old Testament, but they both agree in the 27 books in the New Testament. Um, and the Catholic Church also has a Latin, the Latin translation of the Bible, whereas Protestants use the Hebrew as, as their main Bible, right? Uh, the nature of scripture. The disagreement is not about the inspiration, truthfulness, and importance of scripture, all of which Catholics and Protestants alike affirm. Rather, specific attributes of scripture that are embraced by Protestants and not Catholics are authority, sufficiency, necessity, and clarity. The Catholic Church does affirm the authority of the Word of God, but divine revelation for Catholics is not just scripture, but scripture plus tradition. So the written word is an, is an authority, but it's not the authority, or sola, sola scriptura, as held by the Protestants. According to Protestants, the sufficiency of scripture means that it provides everything that non-believers need to be saved and everything believers need to please God fully. For Catholics, this sufficiency comes from scripture and tradition together. The Bible in and of itself is not sufficient for Catholic doctrine and practice. The necessity of scripture is affirmed by Protestant means that the church could not exist without the word of God. If scripture being essential were to vanish, the church would lose its way. By contrast, for Catholics who do not affirm the necessity of scripture, the Catholic Church could continue to exist even if scripture were to disappear. This is the case because divine revelation consists not only of scripture but tradition as well. Thus, if scripture were lost, the church could not flourish, but being nourished by tradition could still exist. Finally, the clarity of scripture as affirmed by Protestants means that, that the Bible is understandable to all Christians. Because of this attribute, Protestant churches teach and encourage their members to read and study the Bible personally and in small groups. By contrast, the Catholic Church denying the clarity of scripture specifies that the magisterium, that is the popes and bishops and communion together in Rome, possess the right and duty to provide its proper interpretation. Certainly, the church encourages its members to read and study the Bible, but their involvement in such reading and studying is significantly less than such activity in Protestant churches. And I can attest to this, like I was saying in my testimony, Catholics use the Catechism of the Catholic faith, and the Protestants have the Bible to back it up. So, yes, their involvement of the church in studying the Word, their exposure during Mass is basically like what you get from Scripture. The rest is tradition and doctrines. Mary is the fourth um, difference. Uh, the doctrine of Mary, so before presenting the differences, um, it's good to know the commonalities. Both Catholics and Protestants affirm the virginal conception of Jesus. Both traditions bless her because Mary believed the angel's announcement that she would give birth to Jesus, who would save his people from their sins, as in Luke first. And both Catholics and Protestants rightly look to her as a stellar model of the obedience of faith. 
She trusted that God would fulfill his promise to her and all Christians desire to do similarly. As for disagreements, there are several major areas that divide the two traditions. Catholic, Catholics believe that Mary was immaculately conceived, that is, she was preserved from the stain of original sin from the moment of her conception. Protestants deny this doctrine. Flowing from the Immaculate Conception is the Catholic belief that Mary was sinless throughout her entire life. Protestants maintain that she, like all other human beings after the fall, was infected with original sin and actually sinned in common human ways. Because of their belief in Mary's Immaculate Conception and sinless life, Catholics maintain that she was full of grace and thus well prepared to cooperate with a divine plan for the incarnation of God the Son in her womb. Protestants object to this tendency to elevate her obedience of faith to a level of decisiveness, even to the point of making the divine plan dependent on her cooperation. Instead, Protestants underscore that her participation in the incarnation was the result of God's unmerited favor toward her and not grace plus her consent. All right, so fro flowing from this overall theology of Mary is the Catholic doctrine of the bodily assumption of Mary. When the, the word says that when the course of her earthly life was finished, she was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory. Protestants point that the lack of any biblical evidence for this belief and object that Mary, like all other Christ followers, died and now exists in the inner intermediate state of a disembodied believer. Finally, Mary's titles, advocate, helper, benefactress, mediatrix, and queen, sum up well Catholic Mariology, but are problematic for Christians. The fifth dis area of disagreement is the church and its sacraments. Um, According to Catholicism, there exists a single Church of Christ which subsists in the Catholic Church, governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. And you'll hear a lot about, you know, when you why Catholics believe and say in the Catholic Church is because, you know, they can trace the bishops of Rome back to Peter. And that's, like, they, they stand on that. We'll talk about that too. So at the heart of the Catholic Church is the sacramental economy. That is, the Church transmits Christ's saving benefits by means of seven sacraments. Um, and I mentioned some of those earlier. Those are uh, baptism, penance, Eucharist, confirmation, matrimony, holy orders, and the anointing of the sick. By contrast, Protestants administer only two ordinances. Um, which are God-ordained ceremonies. So we'll also differentiate the difference between a sacrament and an ordinance. But those are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So to Catholics, um, the sacraments are a way, like a rite, that when directed by a priest, kind of impute grace and mercy on the faithful, therefore making them... Uh, more holy, better prepared to approach the throne of God. Whereas an ordinance is a, is a God, 
it's a ceremony. What is it? What do I have? I have it here. It's a God-ordained ceremony, right? That we observe the, the Last Supper and baptism, not because it gives us grace, but because it's in the Bible and God told us to do so. So there's a distinction there. Uh, okay. So the role of the sacraments and in salvation is brings us to the sixth difference between the two is the salvation. Uh, so Catholics maintain that salvation is a lifelong process. The journey begins with the sacrament of baptism and continues with the other sacraments. These rites provide an infusion of grace that transforms the nature of the Catholic faithful, thereby enabling them to engage in good works and merit eternal life. Because most Catholics will fall short of the purity they should have achieved in this earthly life, when they die, their soul goes to purgatory. By contrast, Protestants understand justification to be a divine declaration that sinful people are not guilty, but righteous instead. Grace then is not infused into people to transform their character so they can merit eternal life. Rather, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to them such that they stand completely holy before God. So, according to Protestants, purgatory is completely unnecessary because no further purification after death is needed or possible. Okay, so those are the six differences. Now, um, I'd like to go over just elaborating on these differences because, like I said, you'll likely hear when you have a Catholic, a conversation with a Catholic, some of these differences come up and how we can, um, as best as I can explain it, how we can talk to them about it. Um, as far as tradition goes, once I understood the difference between a man-made doctrine versus a biblical doctrine, that made things a lot easier for me because, like I said, I grew up with a tradition, right? Everybody around me does it. It must be right, so why would I go look for answers when I don't have the questions? It wasn't until, you know, my husband would point out certain things that I really started to, like, question and wonder where this certain doctrine came from. So, um, if you can or would like to get your hands on a catechism of the Catholic faith and just when you talk to them have that evidence of, hey, do you, it's great that you believe this, but the catechism says this, but the Bible doesn't, and how can we connect it to and bring the truth, right? Talk about that truth. So, um, uh, one of the verses that was helpful to me in believing that the Word of God was all I needed and I didn't need anything else was 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Um, as far as the sacraments go, confession is one of the things. So you, in order to take, participate in the Eucharist on Sunday, you have to come clean, like, you have to go to the priest, confess your sins, tell him everything that you've done, and he gives you 
you know, a blessing tells you your sins are forgiven, you can go in peace. Um, tells you to give a penance, like say this many Hail Marys, this many Our Fathers, and that is, you know, that's your, your penance. Um, so a lot of Catholics would just take that and then go do whatever they want. They can go party, go crazy, and then they're like, hey, it's okay. I just go to the priest during the week, and he'll tell me that I'm good, and that's it. There's everything. There's a lot of knowledge up here, but it doesn't happen in the heart. So, like, there's just a rep repetition, like, do good, but then ask for forgiveness. Um, so... But the, the problem with confession also was that, you know, you could leave confession, leave the church, and then sin again, and like turn right back around, and like, I need to confess because I just sinned. So my husband would like challenge that often to me because we would be doing something, and I'd be like, I have to get a confession. Sunday's coming, and we need to stop this right now, and I need to go do this. But he'd be like, why? Why do you, need, you feel like you need to go to a father or a man? The Catholics, the, the priests, the bishops are the, cho the representative of Christ on earth. So like he has the power to forgive my sins. And so the focus, the spotlight shifts from Jesus being the high priest to let's go to the Father to, to, for my forgiveness of my sins. Like you're never made to believe that you're good enough to go directly to God to have that direct relationship. You have to go through somebody else because you're not good enough. Does that make sense? So, um, yeah, the verses in Hebrews 4, 14 through, 7, through 16, let me just find it in my Bible. So Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we did not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need so the bible itself has everything that we need and i didn't know that for myself growing up it verses that are that point you to back to jesus to the shift the spotlight back to jesus were super helpful in my conversion right it was my husband can say all he wanted to me about that's unbiblical and that's not true but the bible itself was living and active in my heart alone and, and Catholics who believe in the Bible they're just not as exposed to it they don't know it as much so um, that was that was great when we know verses that can help you know point us back to Jesus uh, so also in first Peter 2 9 it says but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's no need, the veil was torn, right? There's no need for a mediator. There's no need to go to somebody else. There's no need to, for um, the validation from a, from a priest, you can get that directly from God, just bring it to him. 
Um, baptism. So, baptism as an infant. So, like, I was baptized as a Catholic, as an infant, I'm sorry. And um, I didn't have a choice. The mainly because, and I haven't baptized my children, and like I said, I have a Catholic family. My mom constantly asks me, when are you going to baptize the children? You know, what happens if they die? And so it's really driven out of fear because the Catholics, salvation is part of your, I'm sorry, baptism is part of your salvation. So if you die, you're not baptized, you may not go to heaven, right? So infant baptism, they baptize them um, because if they die, and they're not baptized, they can go to hell. Um, but Jesus, talk, Jesus, Jesus doesn't talk to children. When the Bible talks about repentance, it's talking mainly about adults who, have, who can make their own choices. Right? In the Bible, when it talks about children, it's like Jesus is telling them, like, let the children come to me, you know, or if you, unless you become like a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So biblically, there's no basis for infant baptism. Um, so, yeah. Mm. They do believe in this, uh, it's, and it's not a doctrine, but there is something called like a limbo, right? Like they can, when they die and they haven't been baptized, they're like in limbo. <laughs> it's kind of weird. It's funny to say because I don't, so they go to like this limbo. It's not purgatory because they haven't really sinned, but there's like, they're not really in heaven, so. Yeah, a lot of. Uh, Do they stay there forever? It's limbo, so nobody knows. Maybe until just as the second coming. I don't know. <laughs> so then, um, yeah. Uh, so then, the concept of purgatory. Uh, when a Catholic, when someone dies, and a Catholic person dies. There's like sadness and it's mournful and it's like, ah, what is gonna happen to my loved one's soul? Like they're probably gonna go to purgatory. And there's no there's no joy because there's they're they're where they go is unknown. If they had a good life, like if you had asked me while I was a Catholic if I was gonna go to heaven, I would say, I don't know, it depends. If I went to confession that week, maybe. <laughs> Or if I was good enough that week or wherever I died, then maybe. So, yeah. Purgatory is where the people go because they haven't been sanctified in their earthly life. And, you know, the people that are left alive, they ask you, like, can you pray for their soul? Let's pray for them, for God to have mercy on them and, and, and let them in heaven. Um, there's no biblical basis for that either. In fact, um, I have some uh, verses for you. So I can't understand my own handwriting. Jesus. All right, let's flip to John 14, verse 6. Just because I have it there, if you have Bible. So Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
So unless they believed and lived a life, a Christian life following Jesus, there's nothing that we can do after, after life to earn or go to heaven, right? Uh, the parable, let's consider the parable of the wealthy man and Lazarus in Luke 16. Uh, that says... Sorry. Okay. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So that right there tells you that after death, that's it. There's no more. There's, there's no in-between. There's no, there's, no in, there's no gray area. Also, uh, Hebrews 9, 7, And just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. So again, there is nothing after the death. Okay? But... Uh, when you flip to 1 John 2, 1, it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So that is like the good news, the hope that we have in Jesus as our advocate during our judgment when we die. Um, it's unfortunately like it may feel good to pray for the, for the souls that are dead and may bring them comfort. Um, the best that we could do is just pray for the ones that are still alive, kind of like what we would like done for us on that in that moment. Okay. Um, so the true church from Peter. So. Peter as the rock in Matthew 16, 18 is probably one of the first objections you'll hear from Roman Catholics. Was Peter the first pope? Um, the answer is, according to scripture, no. Peter nowhere claims supremacy over the other apostles. Nowhere in his writings in First and Second Peter did he claim any special role, authority, or power over the church. Nowhere in scripture does Peter or any other apostle state that their apostolic authority would be passed on to successors. Yes, the apostle Peter had a leadership role among the disciples. Yes, he played a crucial role in the early spread of the gospel. And yes, P Peter was the rock that Christ predicted he would be. However, these truths about Peter in no way give support to the concept that Peter was the first pope or to or that he was the supreme leader over the apostles, 
or that his authority would be passed on to the bishops of Rome. Peter himself points us all to the true shepherd and overseer of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 2.25. Um, and yeah, and if you look at the history of the Catholic Church, uh, it's more, it's, it's more political, like the, the, the Roman Church is more political and how it became more so than religious. So, yeah. Okay, Mary. Also, nowhere in scripture does Jesus or anyone else direct any praise, glory, or adoration toward Mary. Mary was present at the cross when Jesus died. Mary was also with the apostles on the day of Pentecost. However, Mary is never mentioned again after Acts first, or Act, Acts 1. Sorry. The apostles did not give Mary a prominent role. Mary's death is not recorded in the Bible. Nothing is said about Mary ascending to heaven or having an exalted role there. As the earthly mother of Jesus, Mary should be respected, but she is not worthy of worship or adoration. To us, it will be a form of idolatry. Right? The Bible nowhere indicates that Mary can hear our prayers so that she can mediate for us with God. Mary herself sets the example for us in directing her worship, adoration, and praise to God alone. Um, in Luke 1, 46 and 49, she says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now, all, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. So, I was looking up, there's uh, there are a lot, of, especially in like Central and South America, People claim to have seen apparitions of Mary, like I saw, you know, Guadalupe, or I saw this virgin, and uh, and they hold fast to that. Um, again, it's kind of like a form of idolatry, and you know, spirituality or spirits or like things are not biblical. So I would encourage you to do more research on that because it can be a touchy feeling a touchy sub subject, especially with um, like South American or Central American Catholics. It's not, a, it's not, it's not biblical, but there's a lot in there that I, I didn't feel like I had a lot of time to go over tonight. So uh, in dialoguing with your Catholic friends, acquaintances, family, I would give you some do's and don'ts um, to keep in mind. So now we know that there are a lot of commonalities between us. So when you do, just identify with them. We have a lot in common that we can build from. Um, common Christian beliefs, key doctrines. Um, remember that they're not a project for salvation. Um, they're friends, loved ones, family members. They're you know, divine image bearers were called to love on them as prodigal sons and daughters to bring back to God. Uh, remain humble, especially if you have been preparing to have a conversation with a Catholic. Try not to, like, talk down on them and, like, treat them like you know more than they do or they're, like, dumb for believing what they do. You know, remain humble in your conversations with them. Uh, pray. Pray for them constantly, like, 
Frankie confessed that at some point he almost gave up on talking to me because I wouldn't, <laughs> I resisted so much, I wouldn't listen to him. And he just had to pray and leave it in God's hand, you know, and that's exactly what happened. He stopped and I just did it on my own. <laughs> just that pressure was like, anyway. Um, yeah, pray specifically that the Holy Spirit would bear witness to their truth, to the truth of the gospel of grace in the hearts of those to whom you speak. Uh, you know, we had a relationship. Like, he was comfortable to talk to me about these things. So if you're able to build a relationship with a Catholic person in your life, do so. Like, don't be in a mad rush to talk about, like, spiritual things. Because like they say, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So if you have the opportunity to build a relationship with that person, um, unless you know for sure that you're never going to see them again, then you can talk, you know, we go to business. But, you know, try to have a relationship with them. And they're more likely to listen to you. Um, so take, and then take your time. Sometimes people tend to lambaste Catholics with all that is wrong with their belief system all at once. You know, Mariology, prayers to the saints, work salvation, papal, a purgatory, sacraments. Um, yeah, that, that like flamethrower approach may not work in leading someone to Christ. Instead, focus on one or two issues in a single sitting. Uh, remember, Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So Jesus was sensitive to how much his listeners could digest in a single sitting. Uh, don't be discouraged. You may get some pushback from them you know, at first, but don't stop loving them you know, or praying for them or seeking a way to serve them. Their attitude might change later on, and knowing that you were there loving and caring for them, you know, they might come to you to help them in the process of Acknowledging the grace of salvation. Uh, gently persevere in the truth. Uh, the gospel of God may not make much sense to someone who has been schooled in a gospel that involves the necessity of meritorious works throughout life. Be patient and persevere, and this includes being willing to cheerfully go over the same doctrinal point of the Bible ten times until it's clear and it makes sense. Um, do you exhaust every effort to answer their questions? Uh, we must share not only what we believe as Christians, but why we believe it as well. Remember the apostles defended the faith as well as evangelists. Um, and if you don't know the answer to something, like it's okay to tell them, I don't know it right now. Is it okay if I take some time and call you or get back to you later? Um, they're likely... Yeah, say yes. Or read it together right there and then. There were times when I would approach Frankie with something and he'd be like, I don't know. Let's take out the Bible and read it together. And we would have like beautiful conversations um, right there. It's funny because like after, you know, I left the Catholic Church and we started coming to Emmaus with all that time, um, we started having those conversations and it was as if God was redeeming all the time that we spent bickering and disagreeing and just being divided over our doctrines. And instead, kind of just like the Word was bringing us together and, you know, redeeming, our, redeeming us and learning from 
and you know with one another about God and it was just beautiful uh, so understand that family conflict may develop most Roman Catholics don't become Catholics because they you know they examined their own doctrines and decided to research something else um, rather they are born into a Catholic family and as they grow up they have families on their own and they pass these beliefs on their kids and the and the just keeps getting passed on from generation to generation so if the the catholic person ends up leaving the catholic church you know and listens to the gospel of salvation just understand that there might be family conflict that might develop there um, family can get angry and resist them leaving like I grew up with my mom <laughs> telling me that anybody who leaves the Catholic Church is in sin. It's a sinner. Anyone who is not in the Catholic Church is a sinner. It's not biblical either. I think that's just what people say so that you don't ever leave. <laughs> um, uh, but as James McCarthy is a former Catholic who now has a ministry to Catholics, says, often the reason that Catholics react so strongly when a family member converts has more to do with family and culture than it has to do with theology. Having been born Hispanic, Italian, Irish, French, Filipino, Polish, Austrian, or any of the other predominantly Catholic ethnic groups, Catholicism is in their blood. It is a part of the culture they inherited from their parents and grandparents and so on. That's why when the Catholic becomes born again and joins an evangelical church, Catholic family members feel that their loved one has virtually defected from the faith or even sinned. They take it very personally and feel very hurt. So um, you can talk to them about the verse in Matthew 10:37, where it says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found this life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Um, yeah, I feel kind of, my mom and I, my mom is still a devout Catholic. She and I cannot have religious conversations without it, like, getting heated. <laughs> so this is all, like, I'm taking my own advice because I don't, I still don't do a lot of the things that I'm telling you, so I kind of feel a little hypocrit hypocritical about it, but I'm learning and I'm willing to approach her with a different lens. But yeah, they can get defensive, especially like a, a traditionalist Catholic or an ultra traditionalist Catholic. They'll know how to defend their faith. But anyway, uh, so one practical way to share the gospel with Catholics, in my experience, was just the Bible, the word itself. Um, you know, invite the Catholic in your life to maybe go through a Bible study with you and read from the New Testament or even a topical uh, study. One author, one of the authors from the books that I prepared for this class was talking about um, having a gospel reading group. So like invite people, even if it's one or two people, they're the, 
the Catholic Church publishes a reading for the upcoming Sunday Mass, so it'll be publicly public. You can like figure out what reading is coming up for the upcoming week, and together you can read the Gospel and prepare and just kind of go over that as a Bible study. Um, and it's a simple method. You can read the text twice, pray for God to help you understand what you've read, and study the text by following three steps, observation, interpretation, and application. Focus on who Jesus is. A lot of times people in the Catholic Church know who Jesus is and understand the Gospels, but that's it. It's just like, Jesus is the Son of God. He died on the cross for my, on, for my sins. And that's it. It's left at that. The rest of the work of sanctification and expiation and all of the other things that I mentioned earlier are left out. So focusing on who Jesus is and what he did and what that means to the person um, is important um, and will come up in a, in a study when you focus on that, specifically in Jesus. Um, and, let, and that way they can interpret the Bible by themselves, right? Because they believe in the authority of the church to interpret the word for them, to teach it to them. So what they know is like very limited to what the, the priest taught on Sunday. So if they have a, something that they could on their own, like figure out like what this means to them individually, and that would help um, accept that it's not their works and accept the gospel of grace. Um, so because of a lot of Catholics trust in the teaching of the church for their um, salvation, they don't feel like they're um, equipped to come to it and understand it on their own. Like, oh, it's the Bible is too difficult for me to understand. Like, I don't know what it means. I don't know what it's saying. Um, but, but we can, I, I, we can. And I have a verse for that, that the Bible itself has it. I'm sorry, I don't have it anymore. But I think that's it. So the final question, like after you've talked to them and you know some time has gone by and they feel and you ask them, like, have you ceased to rely on all your own efforts to earn God's love and forgiveness? And based on their answer, that could like let you know whether or not they're ready to receive salvation through faith or if they feel like, oh yeah, I'll try to go to church more or I feel like I can be a better person. They're not ready. Like that self-righteousness, it's like faith plus what I do is still in them and it can take time. So, uh, Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have, been you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. So, that's it. <laughs> that's all I have. Thank you. Um, So we can open it up to like some questions. Yes. Is the is the Maccabees and the other things is in the Catholic Bible? It's not in the Protestant Bible. Do you see any conflict in that? Do they do they contradict each other? No, 
And that's a good question. Um, the reason it's not in for like a lot of the church fathers, the reason it wasn't considered in the Bible is because it didn't feel like it was inspired or divine. It was, um, in fact, the author. Let me read to you because I do have that in my notes. Um, Let me just find it directly to the answer that you're looking for. Okay, so the early church did not consider the Apocrypha, that's what those extra books are called, to be inspired authoritative revelation. Indeed, key church leaders explicitly denied that it belongs in the canon of the Old Testament. At the end of the fourth century, however, Augustine, which is a, one of the bishops of Rome, uh, Augustine insisted that a new Latin version of the Bible include translations of the apocryphal writings. He, make, he maintained that the translation of the Hebrew Bible was inspired by God as seen in the fact that the New Testament authors quoted from it, which is wrong. The New Testament doesn't quote any of the books in the apocrypha. Um, the Catholics hold to one of the books in the in those writings, Second Maccabees, for their doctrine of purgatory and offering prayers to the saints. But um, but it's not. Yeah, they don't quote no no other. The New Testament doesn't quote any of the books that were left out. So and. And they quote from other books in the Old Testament, but they don't quote specifically in any of those. So, like, it's not confirmed from the New Testament to the Old Testament. Um, I've studied that actually pretty heavily. Yeah. And it's interesting, too. There's even non-apocryphal Hebrew literature that's revered by the Hebrews that didn't make it into the Apocrypha either. So there's, it, it was weird the way Scripture came into being. But with the books of the Old and New Testament, there was great unity, like by almost everybody, almost complete uniformity by the people of God as the books were written and distributed, that these were inspired. And then the, the ones that are debated, the, the Apocrypha and even the ones that are not Apocryphal, they're respected, but they're not viewed as inspired. And it, and it was that way right from the very beginning. And so it was, it was like a community decision community reverence that determines the canonization of scripture. So a lot of people, even, even I, I have a lot of respect for the writings of the Apocrypha. I don't view them as bad. I don't view them as you should avoid reading them. I think they're valuable. The, the histories of the Maccabees yeah. I view as accurate history. Very interesting history from the intercanonical book like the, the, um, between Malachi and the Gospels. Very fascinating. But I just don't view this inspired because the people who first received them didn't view it as inspired. So the apocryphal goes, a lot of that goes between, time period between Malachi? Some, but not all. Um, but the Maccabee books specifically cover history during the Maccabean re rebellion. There's, I think, like 100, between 100 and 200 BC. Yeah, a lot of them were viewed not as divine inspiration, but more like, uh, like a sharing of somebody's message, like somebody talking about it, but not necessarily inspired by God, as the rest of the Bible is. 
and some of the, one of the authors of them even conceded that it wasn't, that it wasn't divine inspiration. And that's what Luther and Calvin argued when, you know, say whether or not it should belong in the Bible as like divine scripture. Anyone else? Yes. Um, what is Catholic's basis for the fact that tradition can be elevated to like the same level of, as the Bible? Like, where did that come from? Tradition. Hmm. I don't know. I think. It, I don't know, like a concrete answer. So I can't tell you. <laughs> but I think a lot of it had to do with like just Rome and uh, the uh, Emperor Constantine becoming, uh, like, accepting the faith and then, like, naming the, the bishop, like, the emperor. So, like, everything that was passed down from there it just became, like, hey, this is what we do. Yeah. I have um, one of my best friends, and it, from what you're saying, it sounds like she's a minority case, but she actually was a Reformed Protestant and, like, used by points of Calvinism, knows her Bible really well, and then recently, like a year ago, converted to Catholicism. And so my conversations with her have been, they've been really interesting, but a lot of times we just kind of come to a head because we're like, yes, that's what it says in the Bible, but then she has this plus, but we can't really get to the root of why she has decided that it's okay to add on this elevation of tradition to the same point as the Bible. Mm -hmm. I think a lot. I did read that a lot. That some people move, uh, like, go to Catholicism because of the history, mm -hmm. because of like the tangible things that mm -hmm. it offers, um, and they see, they like that. They like the tradition. They seek that. Yeah. Um, I think but she definitely has found the comfort in. Right. Which um, and I have in the two resources that I um, that I'm going to give you. It talks about that too. Galena mm -hmm. asks like why some. Protestants are leaving the Protestant and becoming Catholic. Do you think that that any Catholics are within the umbrella of salvation? Just because I don't know, like I, I grew up like you. I was well, not as devout as you, but like I was kind of Catholic uh, just by tradition, uh, and I have a lot of family that still is, uh, and they. If you talk to them, they'll they'll say, "Yeah, I believe that like salvation is through faith, you know, mm -hmm. and that you know, and that um, that Christ, you know, all all the things that you you agree on, right?" Mm -hmm. And so, do you think that there are Catholics, especially some of the Catholics that you said, there are like evangelical Catholics and stuff? And I don't, I'm, I'm not too informed on that. So, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts there? I would I would ask them if it's you know. Yes, there, are, there can be Catholics and that go to Catholic Church that are saved by grace despite of the, what the Catholic Church teaches. Um, but I would, you know, ask them if they believe that they are saved because of just the gift of grace that comes from Jesus' sacrifice, or is it my faith plus going to Mass, going to confession, doing the sacraments, doing all of these things. So I feel like Yes, we know that Jesus died on the cross and he saves us from our sins, but is there more? Do you believe that you still need to go to the priest? Do you believe that all of these other things happen on your own, that you can earn that? If they, can be if they believe that they can earn it and become more righteous or like receive more mercy or grace, then it's not through faith alone. 
Does that make sense? What happens if you don't go to confession? You can't receive communion. So like during Mass, the Eucharist or the, the time of communion is like the ultimate time to be with God, with Christ. Like you, you have this moment with Christ. I guess as long as you have the wafer in your mouth, God is with you. <laughs> you have him. So, but if you don't, then you can't, you can't have that unity with Christ. So do they keep some sort of kind of like record? When we learned about Mormonism last week, they have like a, a card or something, you know, for every year that they renew to make sure people can stay in the, the Mormon church. Is there some kind of record that they keep that, or is it just on the, I guess, the honor system that? Yeah, there's no record. I mean, they do give you your certificate of like baptism, certificate of confirmation, certificates. So you can't take communion if you didn't do confession? No. You're not supposed to. No. And even if you were a Protestant and like you went to church, like out, and you took communion, like you would kind of be accepting what they believe in. Like you take classes, like you prepare and understand the meaning of it and why it's so big because they believe that like, the essence of Christ's body and blood, even though it's not, you know, bloody and all of that, they believe that he's there in body in Christ. So you by you by a Protestant partaking in communion they would be kind of, you know, accepting that that that's happening, which is you know, you don't want to do that. <laughs> yes. Was there one particular doctrine or lost its foundation in scripture like one blow that really like it was multiple (laughs) yeah it was multiple things I mean it started with like make me feel silly (laughs) like there were times when we would be out before going to church and I would say I have to fast I can't eat because I'm going to take communion like I have to I have to fast he's like why are you fasting before communion or, you know, going to confession, or um, just being exhausted. It was exhausting, just like doing all these things, and I still didn't feel connected. I still didn't feel like, I just didn't, my relationship with God was so fragile, right? And so he would see me and say, you don't need to do all of that. So. There is a danger. I wrote down some of the pitfalls as you were, I really wish you had the uh, do's and don'ts list when we met. That'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the, the biggest pitfalls are, um, yeah, badgering, feeling a little self-righteous. Mm-hmm. And because Lucy's my wife, there was a lot of comfort there. And there was a good amount of judgment in being made to feel silly that just flew under the radar for me. I just, oh, I'm, po- I'm poking fun. Or, yeah, just like, Kind of picking apart her her whole background, so that's something to definitely be careful of. Because there were times where I really really hurt her bad. Yeah, there were, and you know, even friends have said that they never thought that I would leave a Catholic church, and that the fact that I'm not in it anymore is just the Holy Spirit. <laughs> they, they never saw it coming. So. Any other questions? Yes. Um, I have a, a very devout Catholic friend, and he's 
made the comment several times that Catholics are the original and Protestants are like the offshoot. Is that mm-hmm. because they believe Peter started the church? Yes, yes. So there's a huge history behind that, which doesn't go back specifically to Peter appointing the bishop of Rome. It's just this is where you know Peter's grave is, which is kind of also debatable. Nobody, it's not really clear. Uh, but yes, and the Reformation was basically Luther saying that you know there is the doctrine of indulgences. It's like basically like a person can pray for another person's sins so that they can be more holy or something like that, and. Um, the church would sell these indulgences so that the, the people would, um, with for money, so that they would impart more grace or mercy on the sinful person. And so, like, you know, Luther, you know, came against all of that and saying a lot of the things that the Catholic Church was teaching was unbiblical, and that is why they separated. Um, not because of the Bible itself, but just like the, the, what the Catholic Church was teaching that was, you know, more for man's gain than anything else. It's very reminiscent when you say that of like what Jesus was teaching about the Pharisees and the Sadducees that mm-hmm. to do and listen to what they have to say and teach, but don't do after what they're doing. It sounds almost like the same kind of thing happened in the Catholic Church. Too. Mm-hmm. Does, does the term Catholic mean universal? Yes, universality. Mm-hmm. Uh, praying to the saints, where did that come from? I don't know where it came from. I don't know where it came from, but it goes along with the intermediate or mediator intercessory prayer, like. Um, so, like the Father. Yeah, so like they're saying, like they are, like Mary, you know, there are people who are in the Bible who had, you know, who lived a good life and such, and so to them it's like they're mediators. Hey, pray on my behalf, even though they're dead. Pray on my behalf, you know, put a good word in for me kind of deal. But then like over time I think it, it changed and it became like, you know, you. Help me. Give me your gift of, of faith or whatever. Put it on me so that I could be as good as you were, yeah. right? Um, so, yeah. And I think it's because of the lack of relationship, right? Mm-hmm. The lack of feeling uh, worthy to come directly to God, right? Like that. Like again, it changes the ship. It, it changes the spotlight from Jesus, and it puts it on something or someone else. Lucy, there's a passage that came to my mind that might be helpful for folks, especially those who have Catholic friends who hold to the tradition of Scripture. So Jesus in Matthew 15, write that down, Matthew 15, 1 through 3, but he is um, condemning the Pharisees for holding the tradition of men over Scripture. And he says, why do you, uh, why do you, the, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, why do your disciples break the tradition wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? God commanded to honor your father and mother, but you say if anyone tells his father and mother, will you abstain from the attitude to God when you not honor his father? But for the sake of your tradition, you may void the word of God. It's almost like a, a way to sort of point out that 
Jesus himself elevated scripture above tradition. Mm-hmm. That they, if there's any competition, scripture wins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it, even from the early stages of the Catholic Church, it had to do with control. So, you know, the Bible was written in Latin, so the Catholic Church had control over the, over the teachings and the words that were shared with the people who didn't understand Latin. Mm-hmm. Luther came along and translated it into German so more people could understand it, and I think that was that was a major rift. But even in my family, it's about control. Um, it, it wasn't about what you believed in Jesus or your faith. Um, it was the religion controlling your actions. Mm-hmm. And I think that stems from the early stages of the Catholic Church. They wanted to control it. Mm-hmm. Even the saints, right? You know, there's a saint of automobiles. There's a saint of pets. There's a saint mm-hmm. like... It's like you can't go to Jesus directly. You have to go to this person because we told you that this person is a saint of, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sadly, I think that's why people leave the Catholic mm-hmm. Church and become atheists. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's most of the people that I grew up Catholic too. I'm Polish Catholic. Grew up in Chicago. We went to Mass in Latin and all that stuff. But we had reconciliation. And you didn't mention that. We were, we didn't go to, well, we had confirmation too, and we had confession. Like, what if you missed it? We had reconciliation on Saturday nights where you could go and confess your sins and to the priest, you know, quietly in front of everybody kind of a thing, and then you could take communion on Sundays. Mm-hmm. But my sister's an atheist now, um, staunch, huge atheist, like thinks I moved south and became crazy. Um, yeah. And, and I homeschool too, so like, whoa. <laughs> um, yeah. and my other sister, she they, she's married. They've been together since they were sixteen, and um, they're 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 they they believe, but they're not. They don't have a relationship. And I think it's because, like what you just said, you you grow up feeling guilty all the time. You mm-hmm. grow up not knowing who God is. You you grow up thinking He's awful and terrible mm-hmm. and mean. And if you accidentally stub your toe, I would. My mom would say, "Oh, God's getting you back for sinning." Mm-hmm. You know, like that. Like who wants to know that God? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Nobody wants to know that God. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it and it's hard to to pull them back because you can understand why they would feel that way. Mm-hmm. You can totally empathize why they would feel that way. Yeah. Um, and they they had that idolatry is a big deal to mm-hmm. Catholics. Huge. Mm-hmm. It's huge. So the two resources that I want to share with you tonight are um, one is Reasoning from the Scriptures with Catholics uh, by Ron Rhodes. Uh, He has a lot of theological points to talk about regarding Catholicism, and he also gives you some questions that you can ask based on whatever doctrine you're talking about. Um, And in the series of Reasoning with Catholics through the Scriptures, he has Reasoning with Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and Muslims as well. Uh, The second resource is uh, 40 questions about Roman Catholicism, and that one talks about why some Protestants are going into the Catholic Church. Um, And that one is a question and answer format. Uh, It makes it easier to find a topic of conversation and um, also gives a Protestant response and gives you some reflection questions. as well. So those two would be my two recommendations.